As the weather gets warmer and <clears throat> excuse me, and more people spend time in the great outdoors, there's a very real danger of ticks and tick-borne illnesses, especially here in the Northeast. Despite the fact that there's a lot of information online about ticks, there's still a lot of confusion about the subject. So we have decided to make ticks the focus of this week's Please Explain segment. And I'm very pleased that it brings Richard S. Osfeld, a senior scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook, New York, to our show today. He's been monitoring local tick populations for over 25 years. Welcome to our show. Thanks. It's good to be with you. And we invite our listeners into the conversation. You can give us a call at 212-433-9692 or write to us on our show page at wmyc.org slash lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Uh, Richard, maybe we can start at, with the basics. What kind of insect is a tick? What does it look like? <laughs> Well, let, let's start with the basics. Actually, it turns out that ticks are not insects. Huh. Um, they are more closely related to spiders, so they're arachnids, um, or, or they're related to mites as well. So they resemble insects in a lot of ways, but they're actually distinct from the insects. So um, they're a group that is mostly parasitic. They make their living by drinking the blood of animal hosts of various kinds, including us, unfortunately. Um, and there are lots of different species of ticks around the world, and they're notorious for their ability to transmit diseases to us, to wildlife, to livestock, um, and various other animals. So they pick up the disease when they suck the blood of something that has the disease, and then they just transmit it to the next person they bite. But don't they have a rather limited feeding schedule? Well, limited in the sense of the number of blood meals that they take, but actually um, not so limited when it comes to how long an individual tick lives. So, yes, most of the pathogens that ticks transmit that cause disease in us or our pets or our livestock um, are not present in the new baby ticks when they hatch from eggs. The mother ticks, even if they're infected, don't transmit those um, disease-causing agents to their babies. And so the, the baby ticks, in order to become dangerous, need to acquire an infection from somewhere. And they get it usually during that first blood meal they take in the larval stage. And then when they bite later, as a nymph and, and as an adult, they're capable of transmitting whatever they got when they were younger. Are they easy to spot? Well, no. I mean, that's part of the problem, part of the reason why Lyme disease and other uh, tick-borne diseases associated with the black-legged tick are so insidious is because the, the very important stage, the nymph stage, the one that's active like right now, um, May, June, uh, or its peak months, is very, very tiny and inconspicuous, very hard to see when it's crawling on your skin or embedded in your skin, and, and hard to feel as well. And if they were a little bigger, I think we'd do a better job of getting rid of them before they made us sick. Now, where, do, where are they generally located when they attach themselves to our bodies or, uh, of many people's concern, toward their pets' bodies? Uh, are they yeah. in the, the brush? Or do we have to wait for a deer to come by or a mouse to come by? 
Well, so um, where are they in the environment is what mm-hmm. you're asking, yes. I think. So, um, so the nymph stage in the life cycle of the tick, this dangerous stage that's active in late spring and early summer, they tend to look for a host on the ground or in very low vegetation, you know, a couple of inches above the ground max. Um, and that, that's actually an important thing for people to note because the place where you're likely to encounter one of these nymphs is your feet or your ankles. So if you're going to take protective measures, um, that's a good spot to target. Are socks good uh, enough? Well, you know, if you can apply some of these permethrin-based products that are good at killing ticks to your shoes and socks, you're better off than just your socks alone. Um, but that's where they're looking for a host. They're what we call a, a sit-and-wait parasite. They're, they're not very active. They're not actually very good at crawling. They're slow. Um, and they're pretty much sitting there waiting for some other animal to do the hard work and to move toward them. And then if you come close enough to brush by or for them to crawl a couple of inches and get on you, that's what they'll do. But then what they do once they're on you is they crawl around on your skin, under your clothes, um, for hours sometimes. And oftentimes we first detect them when they're up, um, you know, above our waist. And we, we, that fools us into thinking that, well, maybe they dropped out of a tree or maybe they fly or maybe they were in higher brush. Um, when that's actually not the case, uh, at least of the nymph stage. The adult stage does get up higher, but for the most part, ticks we need to worry about are finding us at our feet, ankles, lower extremities. I'm speaking with Richard S. Osfeld, a senior scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook, New York. Uh, We're talking about ticks on today's Please Explain. This is WMIC, WMIC WMIC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Uh, deer are often uh, associated with ticks, but uh, are they the, the real culprits? So what about mice? Well, deer do play an important role in the life cycle of this black-legged tick that transmits Lyme disease, babesiosis, anaplasmosis, and other diseases to us. Um, they are a very important host for the adult stage in the life cycle of this tick, Um, The adult stage is largely feeding in the fall, um, and sometimes if they don't find a host in the fall, they'll come out on any warm enough winter or early spring day if it's above about 35, 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, So deer do play an important role in um, contributing to tick population size, but it turns out that correlation between the abundance of deer and the abundance of ticks is often rather weak or even non-existent. Um, And deer don't infect the ticks with the Lyme disease bacteria, so they do not play a role in producing infected ticks. They play a role in adult feeding and reproduction of the ticks. So, and that's where, as you mentioned, the mice come in. So, white-footed mice which is one of our most common animals in our woods and fields, sometimes in our homes, um, are the, the main host responsible for infecting those baby ticks I was talking about a moment ago. So a tick, a larval baby tick feeding on a white-footed mouse 
has upwards of an 80% chance of getting infected, and that will mean it molts later into an infected nymph stage tick, which is the culprit that makes us sick. So the, it's the so, mice who have the Lyme disease bacterium? Are they immune to it themselves? They do have it, and they're, well, they're not immune to it in the sense that um, they don't try to fight off an infection. And in fact, that's probably why they're so good at transmitting an infection to a feeding tick. Um, they just don't appear to bother to mount much of an immune response. They sort of shrug it off. So they allow themselves to get infected. Um, they don't appear to get sick from that infection in any way. They don't show a pathology that we can detect. So they're what we call a reservoir host. They're the main source of infection um, of these bacteria in the tick population. Aren't ticks blind? How do they find a host? They, it's correct. They don't have eyes. They have um, organs that are capable of detecting light, so they can orient either towards or away from light. Um, I'm not sure how much they use any sort of visual cue, but they're really good at detecting chemical gradients. So they have a specialized organ in their front pair of legs um, that allows them to detect um, things like carbon dioxide, which is emitted from um, all kinds of animals, including mammals and birds. They can detect other chemicals that might indicate that a potential host is nearby, and they can orient towards those cues that they detect. What happens when a pet gets a tick? Can uh, it move on from my dog to me? Yes, it can. Um, so these, these ticks will often bite our dogs and cats. Um, and then, you know, we bring our dogs and cats back in from the outside, uh, and they have these ticks on them. Interestingly, it's sort of a paradox but the ticks that are attached to your dog or your cat and feeding from them, maybe they're somewhat engorged with blood, they're not the ones that you personally need to worry about because once that tick finishes its blood meal on your pet, it's done feeding for um, months, more like a year, So, and, and it will not survive in your house or apartment. Um, but, of course, your pet might need to worry about uh, what that tick is transmitting to it. But the other issue and, is And that can dogs and cats get Lyme disease? Yeah, dogs certainly can. They can get quite sick, um, and they're treated, with, uh, treated for Lyme quite a bit by veterinarians. Um, and they can get vaccinated against Lyme as well. There's an effective um, dog vaccine against Lyme. Cats... It's somewhat controversial. My understanding from talking to veterinarians is that cats don't show symptoms of Lyme infection, but of course, people who are sick from Lyme get lethargy. Um, they don't really want to move very much, so maybe it's a little hard to tell if a cat is really sick. Um, but in essence, there, there is little, if any, use of um, vaccination with cats. They're thought to be um, fairly uh, resistant to infection with Lyme. Although but I was we, we do try to protect our dogs with all sorts yeah. of things. But uh, before I get to calls, our number, mm -hmm. by the way, is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page, wmyc.org slash slowpage, Facebook or Twitter. Uh, just one more question. Uh, what role do acorns play in all of this? <laughs> 
Well, it's one question. It has a lengthy answer. I'll try to keep it short. But um, it turns out that acorns are a good leading indicator for how bad a year it's going to be for uh, human risk of, of Lyme disease. And that is because um, the oak trees that dominate many of our forests in the, the eastern U.S., um, have a, an odd behavior where they produce bumper crops of acorns um, about one year out of every four or five, with most years being very low acorn production and then, boom, a, a, a bumper crop. Those acorns are a really nutritious food source for mice and, and many other wildlife, and they have a really long uh, shelf life, so they get stored and um, that allows the mice to survive winter well, get a jump start on breeding, and their populations boom in the summer following a good acorn year uh, uh, produced in the fall. Is this one of those that, summers? Th- well, so I uh, know the the end of the story is leads up to this summer. So um, the, we had an acorn year in the Hudson Valley, and we suspect elsewhere in the Northeast, Mid Atlantic. Um, in the fall of 2015, and we documented a mouse plague in our woods, um, as well as our basement um, in many people's homes, in 2016. And um, that meant that there were tons of these mouse reservoirs for infection for the baby ticks to feed on last summer when they first hatched out of eggs. And those baby ticks are now coming out as infected nymphs. So we have anticipated that 2017 will be a particularly dangerous year for Lyme disease. So uh, not only oak trees, but also Lyme disease grows out of acorns. (laughs) Yes, they do. (laughs) I'm going to put a couple of calls on. Monica from New Jersey, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for your wonderful program. We are so excited about listening to you every day that we're able to. Thank thank you you. very much. Uh, I live in a forested area in New Jersey, and um, everyone in town worries about Lyme disease. My question is, it's very important to burn leaves each fall because of, I mean, to not burn them because of the air pollution. Um, But I wonder if that hasn't helped the... uh, ticks proliferate over the last few decades, not burning leaves. And I wondered if your guest could fill us in on anything that, you know, that if there's some way we could burn them to some extent to eliminate this enormous uh, disease. Richard? Right. So, so, yeah, there is, there have been a few scientific studies on burning, um, both in the Northeast and also um, out west, where they have uh, a, some something of a Lyme problem, not like we do here in the east, and it's a confusing scientific literature. It, I would characterize it by saying that the initial impact of burning, so within a few weeks, maybe a month or so after the burn, you get an immediate reduction in the size of the tick population, but often they come back with a vengeance, even a few months later. Um, and why they do that is not entirely clear, but it could be because the burning attracts wildlife um, because there's a new flush of growth, and those wildlife are capable of importing ticks from the surrounding area. Um, a lot depends on how hot the fire is um, and um, what kind of habitat it takes place in. Generally, such controlled, rather mild burns do not 
have a very strong protective effect against these ticks. So I'm not sure we would do better off with it, with controlled burns of the leaf litter um, on, in, on the forest floor. My guest on today's Please Explain is Richard S. Ostfeld, a senior scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook, New York. We're talking about ticks, and we will continue our conversation. Take your calls. Our number is 212-433-9692. After this. We are back with Richard S. Osfeld, senior scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook, New York. We're talking about ticks and related problems here on uh, our Science Friday segment. And uh, we are going to go to some of your calls. Uh, Tom from Bronxville, New York, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Uh, this is a great topic. I, uh, I we personal try, Tom. experience uh, from my ex-wife for many years suffering from Lyme's and cat scratch and babesiosis, etc. Uh, and before I get to my my point, uh, is I'm very upset with the medical and insurance communities who believe it's not a real disease, and I don't see any research being done on a cure. That said. I was camping last week uh, across the Hudson River from Millbrook, and I discovered uh, a, a tick crawling on my leg and had just put its pincers in. Uh, we immediately pulled it out, uh, you know, from the pincers with uh, what do you call it? Um, tweezers. Tweezers. Right, and um, you know that was it. Um, I've been watching the the spot. Uh, I don't see any bullseye, although that only occurs in a few percent. And um, I don't feel any symptoms that are different than before. So how long does this tick have to be in to infect me? And right. and, and when we pull it out, can I just add to that? Oh, can we be sure that we have pulled it all out? Does that matter? Yeah, it matters a little. Um, it, the, the degree to which it matters is a little um, inflated. But, but in essence, um, when you find a tick on you and it is just starting to embed its mouth parts, um, that takes place for you know minutes to a few hours after it first starts. I mean, these things operate on a very slow time schedule. Um, if it truly was just getting its mouth parts in and it was not yet engorged with blood, so it's still flat, it looks like your basic flat tick, if you know what that means, then your probability of having been exposed to Lyme disease is vanishingly small. So you did the right thing by you know, watching the side of the bite, keeping your eye open for a rash. Um, and it's true that the sort of classic bullseye rash happens perhaps less frequently than some people assert, but some sort of rash, an expanding rash, and one that's fairly large, not just, you know, a little red spot an inch in diameter, bigger than that, um, that happens in um, a sizable majority, although exactly what majority of Lyme patients, we don't really know. So keeping your eye on the site for the next few weeks is a really good idea. If you feel any flu-like symptoms within a few weeks or a month after that event of pulling the tick off you, then I would take that seriously and see a physician. Um, but 
it sounds like you did exactly what you should do. Now, if you pull the tick out and it's really firmly anchored and you leave, you know, there's a little black speck still in your skin, um, you're probably okay. I would, again, keep vigilant and watch the spot. I would use an antibiotic ointment or a wipe of some kind um, on the site where you pull the tick out. Um, but that's not all that important to whether the tick is actually going to make you sick with one of these tick-borne pathogens. Those get injected from inside its body into inside your body. So just leaving the mouth parts in there is not a terribly big deal. Now, I have a couple of follow-ups before we go to the next call. Is Lyme disease the only major disease that is passed on by these ticks? No, it is not. Um, it is the most frequently transmitted one, but there are a couple of others that are actually quite common in the eastern U.S. and the midwestern U.S. where this black-legged tick uh, occurs. One is called babesiosis, and uh, that is a, a disease caused by a little parasite uh, that's similar to the malaria parasite, and some of the symptoms are similar to malaria as well. Um, it is not a bacterium, so uh, antibiotic treatment is typically not prescribed, but there are other medicines to take. Another bacterial disease is called anaplasmosis, um, and that can be a very serious disease, and it is found in a fairly high percentage of the ticks in our area. Um, but treated with antibiotics, I imagine. That's treated with antibiotics, yeah. the same. Usually doxycycline is the treatment of choice for both Lyme disease and anaplasmosis. And, um, but there are, we're discovering new tick-borne pathogens every few years. Uh, there's another bacterial relative of the Lyme disease bacterium that we now know occurs in our area. Um, there is a virus that these ticks can transmit that is exceedingly rare, thankfully, because it can cause brain swelling and uh, even occasionally death. So I would not be surprised if we discover additional tick-borne pathogens in the, the coming years in this tick that we've known about uh, for several decades now. Just one more thing before I go to the next call. Uh, we talk about pulling them out with tweezers. Are there other ways? I've heard that you can uh, take a Q-tip, put it in alcohol, and then do a kind of clockwise motion uh, on the tick, and that will will release the tick. Is that true? That is not at all recommended. Okay. Um, there are there are various folk um, remedies for getting a tick out, and typically all they do really is waste time. And, and time is of the essence because the longer the tick is attached, the more likely it is that any pathogens inside the tick are going to make their way into your, your body. So the Vaseline to try to smother it, um, nail polish, a burnt match head, um, alcohol to try to irritate it. All these things um, are, number one, usually not very effective in getting it out. And number two, they slow things down. And that's exactly the opposite of what you want to do. WMIC, Tweezers. go ahead. Tweezers, that, that's <laughs> fine it. tip tweezers, grabbing it as close to the skin as possible and pulling straight out. That's uh, thought to be the most efficient and effective way of taking care of the problem. WMIC's own cat Aaron asked us on Twitter, do uh, we have to worry about ticks in places like Prospect Park or Central Park or 
is it only a concern when you're walking through the woods? Well, so that's an intelligent cat, if I understood that um, properly. Um, um, so I am, I, I have, my, my, recently um, I looked into whether ticks are abundant within um, Manhattan uh, and Central Park, for instance. And my understanding is that they've been occasionally seen, but... Uh, are not thought to be abundant, and perhaps if readers know better, uh, sorry, if listeners who know better than that um, are able to, maybe they could call in and give give me updated information. In some of the boroughs, um, there are tick populations, and there is a real risk. The, the riskiest habitat is wooded habitat, where there's a, a canopy of, of leaves overhead or of tree branches overhead. Ticks prefer that kind of more shady, moister habitat than out in an open field. Chris from Garden City, you're on the air. Hi, Leonard. Thank you for taking my call. Um, just yesterday, I received a promotion from my sprinkler maintenance company, and they're advertising a natural product that they uh, basically inject micro doses into the sprinkler system, and the, the product is basically made of ingredients of peppermint oil, cinnamon oil, castor oil, cedar oil, and it says that it it's, it's, uh, helps to prevent mosquitoes and ticks. I'm wondering if uh, you are familiar with it, if it's actually effective, and is it truly safe and won't uh, disturb other native animals or insects? Right, yeah, very good question. So I'm not familiar with this particular product. I do know that there are various essential oils that have been tested uh, in terms of their repellent properties on ticks. And they occasionally have reasonable repellent properties. They tend to be rather short-lived, um, half hour, an hour or so, if you put them on your skin or your clothes, as compared to um, DEET and uh, other marketed uh, repellents that last uh, quite a bit longer than that. Um, there are a few natural products like a, a chemical called Nucatone, which is in Alaska yellow cedar. Um, that's a food-grade substance. I think it's used in soft drinks for a kind of a citrusy taste, so it's consumable. Um, and it has been tested a little bit in, in sprays in the environment to see how well it kills ticks. Um, it, the, the size of these studies is not large. I, don't, I think it's a bit premature to draw firm conclusions, but it looks like it might work. Some of these other oils have not been well tested, and I would ask uh, these companies who would like to um, have you uh, employ them to do these services to show you the evidence that this actually works, and you'd want fairly good scientific evidence. And without that, it's a crapshoot. You know, you're, it's hit or miss. It may work, it may not. And if you don't have good evidence, do you want to spend your money on a roll of the dice? I, I'm not so sure. What about, uh, what's in Frontline, which we uh, use on pets, or, or tick collars? Why are they effective? Uh, would they be effective on humans? Well, um, Frontline has, is, is, is the active ingredient is a chemical called fipronil, and that is a, an insecticide. And when we think about ticks, we call it an acaricide, given um, that ticks are not insects. But the same chemicals often kill both ticks and insects. Um, 
And yes, Frontline has a longstanding record of of efficacy uh, in preventing both flea and tick infestations on pets. And it has been shown to be safe, um, and it's been in use for a long time on probably millions of dogs and cats. Um, I don't know about whether we should seriously consider using it on people. Um, what happens with dogs and cats might not be mimicked all that well with us. Well, so I don't have all that hair on my spine. <laughs> well, so the thing about Frontline is that it's a systemic um, uh, insecticide, a caricide. <clears throat> it, it, it goes into the system, and it lasts for a while. So, you know, you really rub it on the skin, and it goes into the skin and gets distributed elsewhere in the body. So whether we want to do that to ourselves without really thorough testing of safety, I, I'm not so sure. John from Long Island, you're on the air. How are you doing? Uh, my name is John. Thank you very much for having me. I'm actually in the pest control industry on Long Island. I do a lot of work on the East End and at one of the last symposia that I went to, there was some anecdotal evidence of the uh, Lone Star Tick, instead of traditionally sitting uh, in its stalking, you know, holding its legs up, waiting for prey to go by, that they're starting to see them actually seeking out a host. Have you heard anything along those lines? I don't like to repeat information uh, to customers unless I can verify it. Uh-huh. Um, well, and, thank- you know, the prospect of that occurring is is scary because then it's not just stay away from the high brush. It's, you know, uh, try to keep moving. Uh, Could you... We don't yeah. have a lot of time, Richard. Yeah, so so quickly. So, um, yeah, Lone Star Ticks are, are, are a different uh, entity than our, our kind of wimpy black-legged ticks, also called deer ticks, um, but that's not the right name, actually. But um, the Lone Star Ticks are much faster. Uh, they actually, um, I don't like them very much, to be honest with you. They, they're more of sort of a chase-you-down sort of uh, parasite, un- unlike the black-legged tick, which I call the sit-and-wait parasite. So it's true that they are on the move. They're not necessarily just passively waiting for you to come by. They will orient towards people, and they're much faster and capable of of actually covering some ground, unlike their relatives, the black-legged ticks. You wrote a paper titled, Is Biodiversity Bad for Your Health? I thought biodiversity was good. (laughs) Well, And we we only have about 30 seconds. Yeah, well, that's a tough, you know, it's a long paper to capsule, encapsulate in 30 seconds. But the, the one-word answer, uh, if you had to have one, to that question in our title was no. We were responding to some assertions that it may be the very most biodiverse places on the planet that pose uh, a high risk of our exposure to various kinds of infectious diseases, and we argue that that's not well-supported by the scientific evidence, whereas biodiversity protecting us is well-supported. I am so relieved. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Please Explain. Richard S. Ostfeld is a senior scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook, Brook, New York. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much for having me.